Hello, fantasy fans, and welcome to Swords and Satire, the podcast where we turn low fantasy into high art. I'm your dungeon manager, Jamie Molkel, here with my adventurous co-hosts. I'm Chelsea Hollowell, the owner of a tavern in the land of dreams and shadows. That sounds like a place to run a business. It's actually pretty lucrative, believe it or not. Now, do only broad archetypes drink at your tavern? Uh, yeah, that's all who's welcome. Hi, yike. <laughs> <laughs> if you're more nuanced, we don't understand what to do with you. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah, that's not a bad job. But, you know, my job is pretty rough. My name is Jack Olander, and I'm a, a tea company employee. Ooh. The things I've been ordered to do. Oh, God. In the name of tea. I, I'm horrified to even ask. You know, for such a tasty drink, the memories, <laughs> are they worth it? I just can't say. Is- the, <laughs> the leaves <laughs> on my hands. <laughs> <laughs> Is it even worth it for the delicious caffeinated flavor? <laughs> Hard to say. <laughs> Alright guys, well, this week we have another Satire TV, where we take a break from watching fantasy movies, and talk a little bit about fantasy shows. And this episode, we are going to be talking about the next three episodes of Over the Garden Wall. That's right, we're talking episodes four, five, and six today. That's right. But before we do that, you know... I think I want to give a shout out to our lovely patrons. They're awesome. And they make what we do here possible, as well as all of our listeners. That's right. And guess what? We have a brand new producer of the show through our Patreon. Our friend Alicia just became one of our producers. And we are really excited to have her on the show. Yeah. talk fantasy movies with her and to basically be at her beck and call when it comes to providing (laughs) hilarious podcasts that's gonna be so much fun hype yep alicia rules thanks alicia and if you want to become a patron of the show you could head over to patreon.com slash swords and satire select one of our tiers get access to awesome exclusive art get to vote on a movie we watch each month, and you would support the show. What could be better than that? All right, guys. Well, we've strung it on long enough. Let's start talking about episodes four, five, and six of Over the Garden Wall. But first, a summary. Let's start off with episode four, Songs of the Dark Lantern. Yeah. So, episode four is set with Wirt, Greg, and Beatrice as stowaways in a carriage that winds up dropping them off at a tavern where the patrons are archetypal representations of the different daily occupations. And tradespeople. That's right. Sounds like every establishment I ever go to. That makes sense. (laughs) The townspeople are perplexed 
to hear that the main cast does not have occupation identities. Yeah. And sing songs to them about what they could be, such as they think Wirt is a lover and then a pilgrim. Yep. After a little bit of confusion from that, they find that the woodsman might be the beast, and in a confusion with Beatrice, they crack open the woodsman's lantern and run away into the night on a talking horse. Typical. (laughs) Sounds like a standard Friday night to me. Yeah. And we see the beast, and he sings his song. It's hauntingly beautiful and creepy. Just like the beast. Yes. Yes. And his silky voice. Oh man, that is very accurate. (laughs) Why is he so sexy? More on that in the Dell. He's a sexy beast. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) All right. After that, we have episode five, Mad Love. In this episode, the sins of capitalism are put on stark display as we meet the character Quincy Endicott, who has potentially gone mad from isolation in his gigantic mansion. Quincy seems to have taken Wirt and Greg in under the auspices that they are his nephews, and they use this to their advantage to be able to go around Quincy's house looking for two pennies, which they will need to take passage on the Frog Fairy in the next episode. But Quincy has a problem because he thinks that he's either losing his mind or that his house is haunted. So he takes Greg around through his house, looking at all the artifacts he has there and trying to get to the room where the ghost is thought to reside. Eventually, they arrive in the room that Quincy believes the ghost has been in. And a woman comes in who is not actually a ghost, but another corporeal being. It turns out that Quincy's mansion has grown so exponentially large that it is fused with that of Marguerite Gray, a competitor in the tea trade. Mm -hmm. But competitors they will be no longer for Quincy and Marguerite begin a dalliance. Yeah. And as a thank you for their help, Quincy gifts two pennies to Greg. But Greg, on the way out of the estate throws them into a fountain, saying that he has got no sense. (laughs) But that's it for episode five. I think we should probably find out about episode six, Lullaby in Frogland. Yes, this is when Greg, Wirt, and crew are stowaways again, but on a steamboat, a frog steamboat. Oh, my favorite kind. They're crossing a river. They didn't have their two pennies, so they're stowaways. The frog police find out and are chasing them all around, and they pose as members of of the band to blend in. A classic ruse. And to escape the frog police. They're fitting in so well, they're playing the drums, the bassoon, and their frog friend, uh, who is Fred at one point. Is now George Washington. That's right. He has this amazing singing voice. He really does. They're doing so well that when the police find out who they are and are going to arrest them, the rest of the frog people sh- uh, shame the police into leaving them alone because they want to hear their music. George Washington is definitely in the top three singing frogs that I'm familiar with. Yeah. 
It's a little oh brother where art thou moment. Yes, it is. And then uh, they kind of camp out once they get where they're going uh, because it's nighttime by the time they disembark from the steamboat. And Beatrice steals off into the night because she's having second thoughts about bringing them to Adelaide's house. Turns out Adelaide just wanted the children to keep them as servants. And Beatrice feels so bad about this, she tries to offer herself instead. And she tries to go back on betraying her friends. <laughs> Turns out Greg and Wirt followed her. They barge in. Adelaide traps them and threatens to fill their heads with cotton to make them pliable and easily controlled. Yike. But then Beatrice opens a window. Uh-oh, fresh air. No! <laughs> That's deadly! When <laughs> when it hits Adelaide's skin, she says, No, my delicate skin can't handle the night air. And as she's melting, she just says, It's so fresh! <laughs> <laughs> I hate it when that happens. Beatrice turns around. Greg and Wirt had escaped, and the group is kind of broken up. But uh, Would you say that they are a broken fellowship at this point? Yes. Yes. But uh, George Washington comes back. He was going to stay with the frog people, but he joins back up with them as Benjamin Franklin now. His name changes all the time. Better name anyways. Yeah. Yep. And um, poor Wirt says that he can't trust people anymore after this. Uh-oh. Seems like a old wound has been reopened. But that's what happened in the episodes. Why don't we head into the delve? Welcome to the delve, where we venture deep into the themes, scenes, and lore of Over the Garden Wall. This is a critical arc for Wirt in these three episodes. Yes, we see him go through some interesting changes. Yeah, he kind of goes from a stammering wallflower. And coward. Don't forget one of his primary character traits. Okay. Uh, to a brave hero. Who, we'll say brave adjacent. Who faces his problems. Um. Yeah, I mean... He he confronts the woodsman. He tackles him yeah. to get help Beatrice. He doesn't know that the woodsman isn't going to harm him. <laughs> he thinks that the woodsman is the beast. Would you say he went out on a limb to attack the woodsman? Oh, boy. <laughs> Whoa. Because <laughs> he's literally grabbing his leg. <laughs> Stop pulling my leg, kid. <laughs> there you go on your puns, Jamie. You and your puns. I'm so uh, sorry. But he also faces his problems because he confronts Beatrice and Adelaide rather than running away. True. And he accepts that they might get kicked off the steamboat at that one point, but he doesn't care because he's just having so much fun playing music with his friends. Yeah, I mean, he even um, turns his proficiency on the clarinet, I think, into uh, playing the bassoon. So, mm -hmm. yeah, they kind that of takes some bravery. show that it's like different types of bravery. You have bravery in the face of danger, bravery in standing up for yourself when others are trying to label you, and then bravery when standing up to your own friends, which can be really hard. 
I mean, of those options, that's one of the hardest ones sometimes. Can be. Yeah. And and work, you know, by the end of these three episodes, work feels very betrayed by Beatrice, who he was bonding with. Beatrice was, you know, just before the moment when uh, their little fellowship breaks, had been telling Wirt that he's heroic and that she's got this double motive, right? Like, she's kind of saying, like, you should stay here. You should, you know, make a life here. You'll fit in perfectly. You're the type of hero that we need here. Yeah. See, she starts to have second thoughts. She really feels like they're her friends now. And so she has an important arc in these three episodes, too, because she realizes that her problems aren't the only ones that matter and that she kind of comes out of a self-centered place to a place of caring about what happens to her friends and to other people. I mean, she always did kind of care because she thought Adelaide was going to help her family with their curse. Right. This is also the episodes where we find out that Beatrice is actually a human, I believe. Cursed to be a bluebird. Who's been cursed to be a bluebird. Along with her whole family. Who cursed them? Adelaide, right? Oh, yeah. No, the bluebird. Oh, Oh, the bluebird, right. Beatrice threw a rock at a bluebird, and the bluebird cursed her whole family. Right. And so she needs these magical scissors to snip the wings of her family and return them to their human form? Yeah. That's what Adelaide tells her. I'm not convinced it'll just keep it wouldn't just keep them as birds with no wings. Yeah. Brutal. Yeah, well this place Well hopefully is, you don't just shear off a whole wing in one single cut. This place is kind of brutal, right? Yeah. Yes it is. This whimsical world for children is kind of a dark place. Yeah. Is it for children? I don't know. It's for everybody. Yeah. Okay. I mean, it's from Cartoon Network, right? Oh, yes. that's true. <laughs> the target audience for the show is cho- is uh, well, young adults, I suppose. Right. But uh, the Teens. place itself is for everybody. <laughs> true. That's true. I mean, this is one of those classic Cartoon Network shows that it is much like a Pixar movie, filled with imagery and stories that are mostly appropriate for children, but also jokes and imagery that adults will pick up on that would go over the heads of most kids. Yes. Such as, for example, the two pennies necessary to travel in this place very well could be a reference to the two pennies for the ferryman. Well, yeah, because it's specifically two pennies you need to ride the steamboat across the river. Much like the river Styx. Yeah. And giving Charon his... Coins for passage to the underworld. Yeah. The afterlife. Yeah. Two coins, two people. Another yeah. hint that this could be some kind of afterlife. That's right. Yeah. We know that Pottsfield is basically a land of the living dead. That's or true. Undead, or whatever we want to call them. Yeah. Yeah. From the second episode. That's right. So, yeah, we get this repeated death imagery that is. Scary for grown-ups, but probably children are not going to necessarily pick up on the uh, implications of. Right. Which I think is a strength of the writing in this show. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. It tackles imagery of death for the children's audience, too, with uh, you know a lot of skulls and kind of memento mori imagery and stuff. But it also kind of continues this aesthetic that... This world kind of functions off of dream logic. Absolutely. I mean, 
like in episode four, we have this tavern filled with people that are just known for their occupational roles, and that is their whole identity. Well, isn't that why everyone, all- everywhere I go, just calls me the podcaster? <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. And they all sing about who they are. They all have a song that goes along with who they are. That seems like something out of, like, folklore to me. Absolutely. Yeah. Or classic cartoons. Yeah. Like, this show is clearly borrowing the aesthetic of. Mm-hmm. Jack, you really love one of those songs in particular. Oh, Yeah. Well, that's because in this place where everyone is defined by their occupation, all occupations are considered equal, it seems. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And valid. Yes. There's the bakers. Mm-hmm. There's the cobble shoers. The cobblers. The master and apprentice who's on a chain. Yes. Yike. But well, we'll still, talk about that in a minute. Still a valid member of the group. Yep. And then there's the highwayman. Yeah. Yeah. A literal criminal <laughs> with like a bandit mask over his eyes. Mm-hmm. And he gets a special, like, soul song. Yeah, he's, like, lurking in the windows and in the background of shots and stuff as, like, this unsettling figure that doesn't start talking until he starts singing. But he's completely accepted by the members of his community as an important part of the economic system. Yeah, he sings about his violent trade (laughs) and how he knocks people unconscious and in a way that is... His body begins to distort. Yeah. But. Phase knocking. Yeah, he sings about his violent trade and how he robs people. And then everyone claps and cheers for him because he has an identity. That's right. Also, he can tell a story. They're all obsessed with telling a story about who they are. Yes. Yes. Great point, Chelsea. This is a tavern where storytelling is held in the highest regard. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And they really want a story from Wirt. And until he's able to tell them a story, they can't really place him. And they are kind of uncomfortable with Wirt's presence there. Yeah. But once they find out that he's looking for what they think is a young lady, they cast him as the young lover. Now, Adelaide is not uh, that for, (laughs) for Wirt in any way, shape, or form. But the imaginations of the tavern patrons is such that that really sparks in them a concept of what Wirt is all about. Well, they are they are their occupations, so because they're so obsessed with stories, they think in metaphors. Right. So they can't imagine Wirt going on some kind of quest to find a way out of this world or anything. Well, then they do understand when he's haltingly trying to sing a song about their journey, Right. That they are on a journey and they cast recast him as the pilgrim. <laughs> yeah, we get this idea of Wirt having changing identities. Yeah. Even within a few minutes in this one episode. Yeah. He's he goes from someone who like is just trying not to be noticed at all to being someone on a sacred journey. Yeah. Yeah, and this really seems to harken back to episode three that we talked about two weeks ago. Where Wirt is kind of obstinately following orders from Mrs. Langtree or Miss Langtree because he's trying to prove to Beatrice. Well, he's kind of being snarky at Beatrice and being like, oh, you think I just follow orders? 
I'll just do everything that everyone else tells me to do that is not what you're telling me to do. Yeah. So we kind of see how he's trying to find his identity. He doesn't like being saddled with this young lover identity from the tavern folk. He seems a little bit more comfortable with the pilgrim because it fits more with what he is doing, which is looking for a way out of this place. Way home. And And aren't we all just looking for a way home? He started Mm -hmm. out as really insecure. And through this journey, he's kind of finding himself and how he fits in. Absolutely. I mean, this is definitely a journey of self-discovery for him. Yeah. Greg is not quite so reflective, at least not yet. He is the younger brother. Right. His role is more of the kind of archetypal tarot fool. Yes. Who is just driving the plot forward by sheer will to keep moving. Chaotic decisions. (laughs) Right. Whims. Which we see embodied really nicely when he literally says, I have no sense, and throws the pennies into the well. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, the dreamlike logic continues in episode five. There's these two mansions that are just fused, like the people wouldn't know where the edges of their property are. Just like a Minecraft construction, totally normal stuff. I thought it was interesting that they are linked through the garden, the tea garden. The garden wall. Mm. which they're going over. <laughs> Whoa! Um, but yeah, they're both owners of different tea companies, and that's what links them. Right. Is As competitors, but also their homes Being are- Being capitalist like, swine. I yeah, see what you're their homes are linked that way. But yeah, um, in that episode, it's funny because Quincy thinks that Marguerite's a ghost, but it just turns out they were trespassing in each other's homes. Right. And they kind of fell in love with each other, but um, they were like business competitors and they end up going into a relationship and the horse ends up working for them. And there's a talking horse like it's all bonkers. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And in typical patriarchal fashion, the new merged company keeps Quincy's company name. Yeah. Mm hmm. Very suspicious. Definitely. And he talks about like the horrible things he had to do to get as much money as he did to become as wealthy as he did and you know that is a line that i really enjoyed because we all know that you don't become a millionaire without doing some terrible things yeah and i appreciated that line i was like yeah it's true (laughs) you have to screw over a lot of people to to accumulate that kind of wealth that's right that's another one of those lines that i was talking about where kids aren't necessarily going to pick up on the themes but an adult audience who has a little bit more uh, media literacy is going to instantly know what's going on. Yeah, he was just like, you haven't seen what these filthy hands have done. He was kind of popping off. That's a great line. (laughs) He's pretty hype. He's constantly doubting his own sanity as well. Yeah, it's somewhat satirical about the aristocracy in that way. Yeah, he actually has a little bit more self-awareness than I would typically ascribe to the upper classes. Yeah. He kind of knows that maybe something's wrong with him. In his pursuit of wealth over all other things, he's kind of let the important things in his life fall by the wayside, such as finding a partner to live his life happily with. Yeah. Now, in some ways, I'd also say that these two kind of deserve each other. But we don't know a whole lot about Marguerite. 
It's true. But I mean, since she's also a ruthless business owner, I assume that with these the, two are going to have a lot in common. Yeah, with a mansion just as large as his, so she will have had to do many horrible things to get that wealth, too. Right. But, you know, unfortunately for any other competing tea companies, this is going to be a, a monopoly probably that goes unchecked in the land. So they have no concept about, like, what kind of money people would need to start out because they're so wealthy. Both of them each give one penny to Greg as they're leaving to start his fortune. And when he does throw it away into the fountain that's outside of their joint homes, you see it go to the, or you see a fish eat it, and then you see the bottom and it's filled with coins. So does that mean other travelers came through there at some point and got rid of the money too? Or I don't know. Maybe. There does seem to be a cyclical nature to this world. Yes. Perhaps it's some sort of symbolism that every, uh, how you say, wishing pool is connected somehow. <laughs> the treasure that the fish dispenses at the bottom of the of the water. Because a fish collects the coins and then dispenses it on top of the coin pile. That's true. It's also kind of like a money graveyard, a watery grave. Yeah. So next time you catch a fish, check it for gold coins. Sunken treasure. Yeah. I've played enough video games where I know that, you know, you can find all kinds of things while fishing. Swords, armor, <laughs> friends, boots. Boots. A lot of boots. Classic cartoon uh, imagery there. Yeah. That's true. And then this dreamlike logic continues in the sixth episode, too, where there's a steamboat operated by frog people in clothing. Now, I'm led to believe that most steamboats are run by mice. Right. I mean, that's classic. Right. Yeah. So this is a real good subversion of the classic trope of mouse operating a steamboat. Yeah. And they kind of seem like middle class frogs. Yeah. Old timey. Like. You know, southern bell type frogs. Yeah. yeah petite bourgeois. Kind mm -hmm. of. Turn of the last century. Type Wearing of deal. petticoats and yeah. jackets and top hats and such. Yes. This is also when we kind of reveal hidden talents. Yes. Because we find out Wirt is a musician and that. And Greg makes a great drum. Yeah, and yes. that George Washington is an amazing frog singer. One of the top three. And Beatrice has a conscience. Yeah. True, secret talent. Yeah. I love how. The frog cops find out that this is that this one very tall frog is actually the friends all under a trench coat. <laughs> First off, classic beloved trope. I yes. love I loved it. Second it, it doesn't get old. No, it never gets old. Second, when the frog cops are like, hey, that's like the guys we're after, all the frogs in the audience are like, no, no, shut the fuck up. This this band rips. Yeah. We're not letting you shut them down. Yeah. Yeah. That's why I said it's an oh brother where art thou moment. Yeah. <laughs> it's true. When the boys are chased, when the whole gang, pardon, when the whole gang is chased into a supply closet, they come out in that trench coat band disguise. Yeah. And when they stand on the stage, they're sort of panicking, right? Yeah. But as George Washington begins to sing, 
Not only are the gang surprised, the main characters, but all the other frogs are surprised, yes. too. Because the other frogs don't talk or sing. No, they mostly croak. Yeah. So George Washington's singing blew their minds. I know. It was they, great singing, too. They were yeah. all so surprised that he could do it. They weren't, mm. like, shocked in a way that would make them incredulous, though. They were, like, pleasantly surprised. Yeah. Which was yeah. nice. Maybe it's a rare talent. I think that they do mention that in the episode. Oh, okay. Yeah. I knew you were special. Yeah. Right, that's what it is. Greg, oh, who is... Yeah. Greg is the character that we know sees the magic in the mundane. Yes. He sees what's special about things That's or he sees talent. the power or the mysticism that underlies the mundane. Mm-hmm. That's his talent. That's, again, linking him kind of to the full tarot card. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. This childlike wonder is also a lens through which to view the world where you don't get jaded. I where, like that. You, where you allow yourself to see beauty in things that other people might see as just being whatever. I try to cultivate that and point things out to people whenever I take note of them. <laughs> like a pretty flower or a sunset, something like that. Aww. <laughs> mm-hmm. But um, I think we should talk about Beatrice a little bit more and... What's going on with her when she goes to Adelaide's house? Yeah. I, I agree, because all this fun and games that leads up to the visit to Adelaide's gets turned on its head when we find out the dark truth. Yeah. That this whole time, Beatrice has been funneling the boys to a lifetime of servitude and slavery under the arachnid yeah. form of Adelaide of the pasture. She's kind of like an old lady, and her webs are yarn, pieces of yarn. Yeah, and she has a, a coat on with a hourglass, like a Black Widow spider, yeah. Yeah. on its back. It's great. So the imagery is really on point. Yeah, and she has the apron with like the scissors in it, and it's the classic old like bird scissors that right. you use for sewing. And where the um, beak is the she keeps the blade. snapping them when she's talking to Beatrice and it's kind of like her pinchers and it's really creepy. Yes. Yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. Good call. Didn't even yeah. think of that. Yeah, yeah, she is very predatory in her yes. portrayal. She's soft spoken but dangerous. Also, much like another dangerous character, Quincy Endicott, she is voiced by John Cleese. That's right. She is? Yes. Oh, that's hype. Terrifying. <laughs> yes. Haunting. <laughs> but yeah, so Beatrice leaves the group and goes ahead because she's having second thoughts. She realizes she cares about these brothers. She thought before that the ends justified the means. She was trying to save her family. Right. Which is understandable. I'm not unsympathetic to Beatrice in that. But then she realizes that's not true and that you can't justify it that way. Yeah, it turns out Selling children into slavery, you just there's no justification for it. Well, see, she asks Adelaide what she was going to do with the kids. She didn't know what fate was going to befall them before. She surely knew it wasn't going to be good. She did. But she needed that affirmation to be like, no, I can't let this happen. Yeah, she said, I can't do this. Take me instead. I'll be your servant. She was going to give herself up. And she was like, uh, Adelaide said, I need a strong child to do my bidding. 
And Adelaide said, you can make me a human, can't you? Beatrice. Beatrice said, you can make me a human, can't you? And that's when we're and Greg burst in. I mean, that's an interesting point, though. It seems like there's a possibility that Adelaide is just stringing Beatrice along. I don't think that she can be trusted that she's actually going to help her. I, I got this strong sense that she's just trying to manipulate Beatrice. She doesn't seem like a trustworthy type. I mean, she works for the Beast. She outright admits that. Right. But yeah, we do get, like you were talking about Beatrice, this moment of kind of regretful redemption from Beatrice, where she offers herself up to take the place of, you know, what Wirt and Greg were supposed to do in Adelaide's perspective, which is serve her. Yeah. She, Beatrice, you know, offers herself up as kind of a sacrifice, which is quite noble. Yeah. I mean, she grows as a character. She develops empathy for others through the trials and tribulations of the journey she's on with the brothers. Yeah, and it makes it all the more tragic that she's not able to explain herself to Greg and Word. Yeah. And that instead, they kind of see the worst side of what's happening. And this also serves to kind of reaffirm Wirt's apathy and distrustfulness. Yeah. And so it kind of takes a turn for a dark moment. They're kind of going to have a dark night of the soul coming up, it seems like. They're going in, when he's saying that, they're going into some very dark part of the woods and dismal area. Yes. It's it's uh, very bleak around them when he's saying that. They're leaving some of the bright and colorful environs we've seen. Yeah. No more frog steamboats, I'm sorry to say. No. But there is still a frog. There True. was a scene which and, was hype for Greg. Yeah, and I was going to say, and there's still a Greg, so. Yes, it's true. There was a hype moment for Greg and George Washington, the frog. Yeah. Ben Franklin. Yes. At the time, George Washington. Okay. Of this scene. <laughs> when they're getting off the steamboat and the frogs are getting ready to camp out for the night. They're gathered around fire pits, and Greg sees George Washington signing a record deal. That's right. And getting clothes fit for him. And Greg uh, sort of comes to terms with them parting ways. Yeah. And when Wirt is chasing after Beatrice uh, toward Adelaide's house... Uh, word is like, Greg, come on. And Greg just takes one last look back. He goes, yeah, I'm coming. Yeah. Right? Yeah, that's sad. He's Yeah, he's accepting that he's leaving his... He thinks he's leaving his friend. Yeah, for a good life. Right? Who is there from the beginning. It's true. And then uh, after the whole business at Adelaide's, he comes back. Yeah. He left that life to reunite with the gang. And he got renamed as Ben Franklin. Much better name. Yes. Much better historical figure. Yes. Very cool. <laughs> but great. I thought that was a great moment for Greg. Yeah. Yeah. I think it shows character growth that he was willing to let George Washington go. Mm -hmm. And then also, he gets kind of the best of both worlds because when he comes back as Ben Franklin... He gets his friend back. Yeah. And he still maintains his childlike innocence. Yeah, he maintains that throughout. And even though he's kind of a chaotic figure, he's also steady in his 
outlook and his good nature as a foil to Wirt. Right. Wirt's pessimistic nature. Greg is erratic in action, but consistent in character. And I would say that Wirt is the flip side of that. Yeah, it's true. They're, they're good balances to one another. Well, before we move on, we should probably talk a little bit about what we've seen so far with the Beast and the yes. Woodsman. Because we find out that the Woodsman has a daughter. Yes, and that the Beast says that he must not let the lantern, the Woodsman must not let the lantern go out because his daughter's soul is trapped inside there and he must keep it alive that way. Is that right? That's right. The Beast is sort of taunting the Woodsman. Yes. And saying, oh, your daughter's in there. You don't want her soul to burn out, do you? Oh, More yeah. creepy shit. Yeah. Which, uh, when it shows a close-up of the opening of the lantern, you can see, like, uh, the outline of a figure moving around like a flame right. inside of it. Yeah. Uh, which is pretty rough. Especially considering that Wirt and Greg knocked the lantern over and spilled most of the oil out. Good point. <laughs> Troubling, yeah. knowing that there are souls in that lantern. Yeah. And we heard from the people at the inn the rumor that the trees which the oil comes from are made from lost children. Yeah. Right. And that somebody mentions that the woodsman might be the beast, right? Yes. They, they think he's they think. the beast, but then we see the woodsman talking to the beast in the forest. Right, That's but right. we kind of get this theme of mistrustfulness throughout yeah. these episodes. Or not knowing who you can trust. The kids get a lot of diverging information about who they can trust. It's true. Also, there's not a clear indication that the woodsman is following the main characters. Yet, in this sort of dream logic world, he's near them. Despite yeah. they've been traveling for weeks. In world, it's been like weeks, and they're still in proximity to each other. Yeah, it seems like everything is kind of nearby and very far away at the same time. Yeah. yeah. And it and is this dream logic. The beast is tracking them, too. Yeah. So I will reiterate my point from the last episode that this um, really reminds me of one of my favorite video games, Bloodborne. Yeah. The, the theme of... This beast and a hunter or a woodsman chasing after it, trying to protect people. This really reminds me of a From Software game story. Yeah. It really does. I mean, I haven't played them, but I've watched you play them. Yeah. <clears throat> like, the imagery is there. Yeah. The feeling is is right on, and I really, I, I really love the stuff with the woodsman and the beast. Not just because I love Christopher Lloyd, though I do but also because it reminds me of one of my favorite games, which is fun. Yeah. And I feel like there's some overlap in the themes and imagery of this monster that is kind of harrying people, this hunter that is mistrusted by the populace. Right. And kind of makes people uncomfortable and could be, you know, in, in another uh, situation, might be as dangerous as the monster that he hunts. Or in this case, that he's kind of uh, trying to keep at bay. It's true. Also, another thing we should mention, and we might have, but just to go a little in-depth, focus on it a bit more. The lantern belongs to the beast. Right. Right. It is the beast's lantern, and that's why the kids think that the woodsman is the beast. 
because the people in the tavern say, if he has the lantern, he's the beast. That's right. Thank you. Yeah. It's the beast's lantern. and But the beast himself is a shadow creature and keeps to the shadows. So it's really interesting. Yeah. That's why he has somebody else keeping the lantern going, though. Without a light, there can be no shadow. Ooh. Yes. And uh, the woodsman mentions in dialogue with the beast that he won the lantern through combat. Right. He fought the beast for the lantern because it had his daughter in it. Right. And now the beast can't take it from him because the woodsman is stronger than he is. And he knows it. Yeah. At the same time, he uses it to blackmail the hunter, the woodsman. It's true. Which sort of speaks to the insidious nature of the beast. Right. Because the woodsman is stronger than the beast, but he can't defeat or stop the beast from doing what he's doing. Right. And he's probably worried that it could harm his daughter if he did. Right. From one perspective, he won against the beast, but from another, now he's sort of like a slave to the beast. He's kind of trapped in this eternal combat. Yeah. Or cycle. Yeah. Well, guys, I gotta say, I can't wait for two weeks from now when we watch the final four episodes yeah. of Over the Garden Wall. This has been super fun talking about and watching with you guys. It's our second watch through, but I've been enjoying it, I think, even more this time just because I have a little bit more insight into the show and the themes and everything. But do you guys have any final thoughts for this week's discussion? I'm looking forward to understanding more about the beast and seeing what the brothers do now and how they're going to get home because now they kind of like have no leads. Right. (laughs) So it'll be interesting to see what they do next. And the beast is hunting them. He's so seductive. I want to hear more of his voice. Yes. Those sweet dulcet tones. The darkness is so alluring. (laughs) Yes. What does it have to offer? Yes. Potential. (laughs) Very true. I want to see more of, well, I love Greg. Yeah. He's so wonderful and positive. I like to see what he does. Yeah. He's awesome. And uh, the Beast, oh, he's just so cool. It's funny how those are the two characters I'm most excited for. (laughs) The really good guy and the really bad guy. Yeah. Both are alluring because they are pure in their natures. Yeah, that's good writing. That, that is Greg, yeah. pure good, uh, Beast, pure evil. Yeah, and both of them are beautiful for it. <laughs> well said. Agreed. Well, I think that'll do it for us this week on another episode of Satire TV. But if you want to keep up with our show, you can always follow us on social media at Swords and Satire. On Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, you can see what movies we're watching and discussing every week. You can check out our memes, and you can just get in touch with us and let us know what you think about the shows and movies we've been talking about. And as we mentioned before, you could head over to patreon.com slash swordsandsatire and become a supporter of the show for as little as $2 a month and up. And each tier will get you some different types of exclusive art. So that's cool. If you have the means. 
But if you don't have the means, another great way you can support your favorite podcasters is by telling your friends and family about the show. The more listeners we get, the more appreciation we feel. (laughs) Yeah. So go out and watch these shows, watch these movies, and you can listen to the episodes together. Building a community is one of the best ways to enjoy art. Agreed. Sounds like fun. Well said. Oh, wait, we already do that. (laughs) Whoa. Every week. Yeah. All right. Well, until next time. Hail Hail Crom. Crom.